since we've heard Daniel over 15 months, people may have lost track of it and may not be able to connect all of it together as one book. So why don't you recap all of it as a survey in one sitting? I thought that was a very good idea. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, but it's a Herculean task. You realize that. Uh, so most of the time, we'll be flying at 35,000 feet. So uh, fasten your seat belts. But once in a while, we'll touch down on the ground wherever it's necessary for us to explain things. But we'll be, mostly be flying at 35,000 feet. Because it's a survey, we can't obviously go into the details of the 12 chapters in about 45 minutes. Uh, but I'll do my best to do a survey of each chapter and tell you the message of each chapter and connect it with the other chapters or the entire flow of the book of Daniel. So um, over 15 months, we've done that. And in 45 minutes, uh, we are going to finish it. So please give me your undivided attention. In fact, when Jason messaged me yesterday asking what is the passage, I was tempted to say all the 12 chapters. So uh, Ronnie would have had to read all the 12 chapters and... Uh, I would have been more than happy to come in the last five minutes and say, well, that was a gist of the book of Daniel. Uh, but anyway, we will, uh, we will look at the survey of the book of Daniel, and uh, my uh, slides are also working as well. So please give me your undivided attention. Uh, listen to me carefully. Uh, Rabbi Chan, is, is it all right to ask some questions here and not just a proclamation? Okay, so we, we'll do it in a dialogical way today and, and not as a monologue, a proclamation. I understand the Greek word keroxon means to proclaim and not a dialogical thing. But for today, we'll just do it in a more of a dialogical way for us to understand the entire book of Daniel in one sitting. So the book first, chapter one, the book opens with a synopsis of something called the first Jewish deportation. And it happened in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, which is in about 605 B.C., now, the defeat of Jehoiakim and the capture of Jerusalem and Judah does not come as a surprise in the text for us because God had warned of an impending judgment that was upon Judah at the hands of Babylon, particularly at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar the Great because Judah had a lot of evil kings. They did not repent and they did not trust the God of the Bible or Yahweh. So Daniel and his three friends were part of the nobles and royal families that had been deported to Babylon. And we know nothing about Daniel's family. Nothing is mentioned about Daniel's family background as well in the text. But Daniel wrote in his book that the Lord was responsible for the victory that Nebuchadnezzar had over Jehoiakim and, and Jura as well. And Daniel goes on to say that it is God who is sovereignly punishing his people. It is God who is sovereignly deporting his people to the land of Babylon as a punishment for the sin of Judah. And as we see in this book, the book of Daniel, as the book unfolds, we see that there is a great appreciation of God's sovereignty. And Daniel describes God's future dealings with both the Jewish people and the Gentile people. And Daniel makes it very clear that God is sovereign over history, not just Jewish history, but Gentile history as well. We'll see in chapter 1, or we have seen in chapter 1, that Daniel uses a peculiar word for the, the kingdom of Babylon. He uses the word Shinar. The word Shinar is a biblical name for Babylon that often connotes a place that is hostile to God, a place that is antithetical to God. It doesn't have any faith in God. Now, the Bible also says, or Daniel says in chapter 1, that Nebuchadnezzar the Great, when he ransacked and ravaged uh, Jerusalem and the temple in 586 BC, he carried off all the vessels and the goblets of the temple to Babylon. In the ancient Near East, when a king victoriously carries off from that temple any vessels into his own land, it means that he has won victory over that king. And not just that, in the ancient Near East, it meant that he has won victory over the gods of that land as well. And here, Daniel, in writing that detail very clearly, is also mentioning to us in chapter 1 that uh, when Nebuchadnezzar went and ravaged Jerusalem, when he took away those articles from the temple, he did not just gain victory over Jehoiakim and his people. In other words, Yahweh, if I may say it reverently, Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, was in some sense put to humiliation as well. So that's how the book of Daniel begins here. So there were actually six deportations that were done. 
three major deportations and three minor deportations. You see the deportation of Daniel and his friends, which was major in 605 BC when the king was Jehoiakim. And uh, Daniel, his three friends, other nobility and, uh, and royalty were taken. And most scholars believe that Daniel was about 15 years old when that happened. The second major deportation happened in 597 BC when Jehoiakim was the, the leader or the king of Judah. Some 10,000 people were taken as captives into Babylon, and among them was the prophet Ezekiel. And that's where he goes into Babylon, and he has all the prophecies of 48 chapters that we see in the book of Ezekiel. The third thing is the most utterly devastating thing that happened ever in the history of Israel, which will be repeated later in 70 AD under Titus. Now, this happened by Nebuchadnezzar. 586 BC is a very important year in the history of Judah, in the history of Israel. He ransacked the temple, ravaged it. He destroyed the temple. And this is where everything has been carried off as well. And 10,000 people uh, were carried off into captivity, into Babylon. And here... Uh, Zedekiah was the king when all this happened. So Nebuchadnezzar the Great was the king of Babylon. His kingdom was rapidly expanding, and he needed men of great ability to fill the positions of power and responsibility in his administration. And so he chalked out a very clear plan. He chalked out a plan in which the most gifted and skillful Hebrew captives were taken and they were prepared for positions of administration and positions of power. And Daniel and his Hebrew peers who came from Judah were the cream of the crop from Judah. And so they were all selected. And Nebuchadnezzar carefully set about a planned course of education for them, a three-year program of study where Daniel and his three companions were to undergo. And this study involved the study of literature and the study of Chaldean languages as well. So he did three things. Number one, the king wanted to do was to change their beliefs. The first thing he did was to change their beliefs. He wanted to change their convictions and their values. And he attempted to do that by putting them through Chaldean education. Second thing that the king did, he wanted to change their lifestyle as well. And so what the king did was appointed for them a daily ration from the king's table. They could eat from the king's table. They could eat king's choice food. They could drink the king's wine there. And his lifestyle, this lifestyle would expose them to the lifestyle of the Chaldeans, and they could partake of the king's table as well. Now, in the ancient Near East, partaking of the king's table also meant that they were partaking of all the social occasion that involved around the king's table. And Daniel did not want to do that. The third thing that the king wanted to do was change their names, and he went about doing things starting with changing their names. That changes their identity completely. And so uh, they had names that, ha that were connected to the Hebrew God, the Lord God, Yahweh, and their names were changed to Babylonian names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were the names given to Daniel's friends, and they and these names were connected to the Chaldean deities and not connected to the Lord God of Israel. So this is how he wanted to, the Nebuchadnezzar the Great wanted to reprogram these people in Chaldean philosophy, Babylonian philosophy, language, literature, and all of that. And so he put them through a three-year program. So Daniel takes a stand here. He's a young man. He takes a stand. He does not want to defile himself with the king's delicacies and the wine. Now, there are several reasons we could give for that. When I was preaching on chapter 1, we did all of that. We don't have time to get into the details of it. But Daniel goes and negotiates with the in charge there, and he says that, can I be allowed to live just on vegetables and on water? And we can test this for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, if I'm not more fit than all the rest of them, we can talk again. And so he's allowed to do that. And at the end of the program, Daniel and his friends are seen as some of the best in the land. What is the point of chapter 1? You can serve God in a pagan world or in a pagan environment without violating your godly convictions. You and I can live in this world, can live in a pagan atmosphere, and always live a godly life without violating our godly convictions. It is possible, and that's what we see in Daniel chapter 1. Moving on to Daniel chapter 2. In chapter 2, we see that Nebuchadnezzar the Great, the king of Babylon, had a dream. 
And when he got up in the morning, strangely, he did not remember what the dream was, but he remembered the fact that he had a dream. And so the king uh, put out a very tough task for all the sorcerers of Chaldea or Babylon. Babylon. He called all of them into the king's court and he said this, you must tell me what the dream is, you must tell me what the interpretation of the dream is as well. And so none of these sorcerers or soothsayers were able to do it. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar all of a sudden slaughters, I'm sorry, uh, orders the slaughter of all these people until Daniel comes forward and Daniel comes and says that he is able to interpret the dream. And Daniel, before he interprets the dream or says how the dream gives him the dream, he says that it is not he or his ability or his intelligence that's going to give out the dream to the king, but it is God. He is dependent on God. He gives all the credit and glory to God. He says, God who puts light in dark places, God who is able to do things mysterious that we can't understand as humans, that is far beyond our intelligence, is the one who is giving this dream to me, O king. And even as I interpret this dream to you, O king, I want you to understand that we all must give glory to God and not to me. And so Daniel goes on to give the dream first and interpret the dream as well. What was the dream? The dream had a huge imposing statue. Now look at this, please. The dream had a huge imposing statue. And the dream was uh, a statue where the man had a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, thighs of bronze here, and legs of uh, iron, and then you had feet of iron and clay. A stone that is cut out of a mountain, not with human hands, a stone that has been cut out of a mountain, comes and strikes the feet, and the rest of the image and the feet, all of them come crashing together. They become chaff, they get pulverized, and they are blown away. And the stone that comes and strikes this becomes a huge mountain filling the whole earth. Nothing has uh, replaced or displaced that particular mountain. And... uh, Daniel comes and gives the interpretation of the dream. Daniel says, King, the head of gold represents you, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar the Great. Now, imagine a sovereign God is looking at a king and saying, you are a head of gold. He is one of the greatest kings who ever lived on planet Earth. Now, I don't want to go into the historical details of it, but uh, the head of gold represents... uh, kingdom of Babylon, particularly the kingdom as under Nebuchadnezzar the Great. And then you had the chest and arms of silver, the kingdoms of Media and Persia, collusion of those kingdoms, the chest and arms of silver. And then will come another kingdom, which is the kingdom of Greece, represented by bronze. And then you have the legs of iron. After Greece will follow the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome, which will last for centuries, even after the coming of Christ. And uh, then you have the feet of iron and clay, is what, uh, is what Daniel says. What is this feet of iron and clay? Now, this could be some f- a form of the Roman Empire that will be revived in the last days. Some form of a Roman Empire that is connected to the old Roman Empire that will be revived in the last days. And some scholars believe uh, that... Uh, it will somehow come in, in the future into existence. Some form of the Roman Empire will come in the future into existence once again. Now, in contrast to all these temporal empires that come one after the other in succession, there is a kingdom of Christ that is represented by a stone that is cut out not with human hands, but it comes and hits all of the kingdoms of the world, it destroys and pulverizes them, and it grows into a huge mountain. Nobody can replace the kingdom of Christ, and it shall stand forever. The kingdom of Christ is coming. It will never end. O king, that is the interpretation to the dream, he says in Daniel chapter 2. Moving on, in chapter 3, you'll see that Nebuchadnezzar makes a huge golden image. Uh, The golden image is 60 cubits high. Now, you should see the connection between Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 3. People miss the connection here. A lot of commentaries also miss the connection here. Why is the king setting up such a huge thing full of gold? Now, remember, in the previous thing, uh, the interpretation was, you, king, are the head of gold. And after you will come other metals, other kingdoms. Now, uh, Nebuchadnezzar the Great, in denial of the dream that was given... He sets up a huge image full of gold. In other words, what he's saying is, Yahweh, God of Israel, 
you have given a dream to me, and your servant has come and interpreted the dream to me, that after me will come a succession of kingdoms, but I'm going to defy you. I'm not going to let that happen. It's going to be completely a statue of gold. It's my kingdom that will last. Nobody will come after me ever. So that is the connection that you need to see between chapters two, chapters 2 and 3. In other words, he is declaring that it's Yahweh. It's not Yahweh who is omnipotent. It is this man who is omnipotent. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted to stop the whole process of succession before it even began. And so uh, he calls all the Babylonian dignitaries. And they're all gathered for the dedication of the image. And Nebuchadnezzar commands all of them to worship the image. And when the time of worship came, three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they do not worship. They do not fall, fall down. And so uh, since they refuse to worship, they are thrown into a furnace, which is heated about seven times the normal heat, so much so that when they are thrown into the fire, the people who threw them into the fire get burned themselves. And when they are thrown into fire, everybody sees a spectacle there. There are four people and the fourth one they see is one like the Son of God himself moving. While they were put inside the furnace bound, you see that all of them are moving inside the furnace. And uh, that's why they're asked to be brought out. And Nebuchadnezzar makes a proclamation that nothing evil should be said about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of the Hebrews. So that's what we see in chapter 3. Moving on to chapter 4. The story begins at a time when King Nebuchadnezzar was at the height of his reign, the highest point of his reign. He is contented. He is prosperous. He is at the height of his glory. He is right in the crest of his successful career. And it, like I mentioned, he was the king of the greatest empire the world has ever known. And he spoke. It was done. If he desired a particular territory, his armies would go and conquer it. He spoke and it was done. Everything that he wanted, everything that he desired was his. And Babylon, what a great city it was. It was a fabulous city. You remember the, one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? The Hanging Gardens of Babylon was here, right here. The city itself was protect, uh, protected by 15 miles of double walls, 85 feet high. Uh, 27 feet wide, and one historian says about the walls that protected Babylon that three chariots could run abreast on the walls uh, uh, that, that was surrounding Babylon. So much protection. And so he had every reason to be content, to be satisfied, and he was sitting inside proud until all of a sudden he has a dream. Now remember, in chapter 2, God gave him a dream as well. But in chapter 4, the dream that he gets is much more personal. And he's very perturbed by it. And the dream has two distinct parts. Number one, here's a dream. The first thing that king, the king saw was there was a huge and a vast tree. It was far-reaching in its reach. It, in, it, it almost um, went around the world. It has its leaves and branches stretching as far as the eye could see, and birds nested in the branches, and the animals and beasts came and took shelter under it. And then the second part of the dream was this. The tree was suddenly cut off. It was stripped down to the stump, bound with iron and bronze. Then somehow the stump became a person all of a sudden, and he lived among the animals for about seven years. And evidently, that person completely lost his mind. The Babylonian soothsayers could not offer any interpretation. And as usual, these fellows are useless here. I'm not sure why they were being kept and fed in the kingdom. Uh, I think the king had a lot of food and a lot of money, and so he was anyway feeding them. Now, in the modern-day IT industry, which I, I, I worked in, if you don't perform for one month, at max for a quarter, you're given... The pink slip, absolutely. Thank you. You're given the pink slip. But these fellows have never performed... These soothsayers have never come to the rescue of the king. They're still, for some reason, kept in the kingdom. But anyway, that's, that's beside the point. And uh, here is uh, Daniel who comes and interprets the dream. He comes and says, the, uh, O king, the dream is about you. If you don't repent, if you don't repent before the Lord God of Israel, if you don't give all the credit to him and you think you've built the city, by your mighty power you conquered all these kingdoms, you will be humbled and you will start eating grass like an ox. The king does not repent and Daniel's interpretation comes true. 
what happens is that Nebuchadnezzar is driven from men and he starts eating grass. And some theologians say he was, uh, he was afflicted with uh, a kind of uh, a condition called boanthropy, where a man thinks he's an ox and starts eating uh, grass and all of those uh, things. So his hair starts growing like an eagle's feathers and his nails like a bird's claw. And seven years later, can you see this? Can you all see this? Okay. Uh, Seven years later, this man comes to his senses and he all of a sudden realizes that he needs to look up and he looks up, he repents, he looks up at the Lord God of Israel and he starts praising the Most High. And he speaks like a Puritan theologian. If you, if you read that passage that uh, Nebuchadnezzar speaks, he says everything that he purposes will be done. Nobody can stay his hand. He is sovereign. He is the Lord God. And Nebuchadnezzar is finally restored to power and he is given back his kingdom. That is chapter 4. We come to chapter 5. In chapter 5, the year is about 539 BC. And the place here is the royal palace of Babylon. Almost 70 years have passed since Daniel was taken into captivity. Now, Daniel is over 80 years old, most probably 85 years old. And Nebuchadnezzar had long died. At least he died before 24 years. His grandson, Belshazzar, he is sitting on the throne of a shrinking empire centered in that great city of Babylon. And surrounding the walls that night were the, uh, were the armies of two kingdoms, Media and Persia. And they were about to attack this. But the fact of the matter is, Belshazzar that night makes a great feast with uh, gold and silver articles that were taken from the temple in Babylon. He brings them out from the treasury and he starts drinking uh, out of those goblets that were brought from the temple. And there is all, all of a sudden a handwriting on the wall and there's a message written on the wall. And again, the soothsayers could not come and interpret it. And so the queen mother... Uh, she comes out of a palace and she comes and says, there's a man by the name of Daniel who will come and interpret this for you. Daniel comes and he reads the message and he says, it says, Mene, mene tekel ufarsin, which means, O king, that your God has numbered your days, God has numbered your kingdom, and you've been put on the balance, you've been found wanting, and therefore your kingdom is given to Medes and the Persians, Media and the Persia. Where is Media Persia right now? outside the city walls of Babylon, ready to attack them. And that night itself, as Belshazzar honors uh, Daniel, that night itself he's attacked and his kingdom is overthrown. And who takes over? Darius the Mede is the one who comes and takes over. And uh, he is the king. So Babylon is over right now. You come to Media and Persia. Chapter 6. In chapter 6, Daniel under Darius, is made one of the top three governors. And under the top three governors were 120 satraps. Satraps were the regional people, regional leaders. And over them were three governors, and one of them was Daniel. So this was Darius's administration. And as this administration was going on, the other people, the governors and the other satraps, were jealous of Daniel. They tried to find fault with him. But search as they may, they never try to find, they never can find a fault with him. So when they examined his life, his enemies discovered three things about him, and the chapter is very clear about it. Number one, he was faithful in all of his duties. Daniel was faithful in all of his duties. Number two, Daniel was faultless in his character. And number three, Daniel was fervent in his prayers. These are the three things that uh, they found out about him. They couldn't find a fault with him. And all of a sudden, they begin to realize that if you were to find a fault with Daniel, it's only about his prayer or his commitment to God. And so they come and make Darius sign uh, a kind of a decree that anybody who bows to any god other than Darius will be thrown to lion's den. And then you have here, uh, Daniel is thrown into lion's den, and Darius does not like it. Uh, Darius goes and says that, Daniel, your God will protect you. The king fasts that night, and he is not entertained by any musicians. He is troubled that night. Early in the morning, he goes to the lion's den, and he finds Daniel alive there. And he says, bring Daniel out of the lion's den. Most of the Sunday school kids, you know the story too. He brings Daniel out of the lion's den, and the people who complained about him, along with their families, were put into the lion's den, 
And the humor of the Bible, it says that even before they reached the ground, the lions just broke their bones and ate them and pulverized them. That's Daniel chapter 6. And so Daniel begins to prosper even under the Persian kings, the reign of the Persian kings as well. Earlier it was Babylon. Now he's moved as a governor under Persia. That is the integrity of Daniel. You come to chapter 7. Now, here's where it gets intense. Uh, I've spoken for 17 minutes. I think I won't take more than uh, 17 more minutes, but please give me your undivided attention, please. John Walwood, a great prophecy scholar from Dallas Seminary, he is with the Lord now. He says this, the vision of Daniel in chapter 7 provides the most comprehensive, detailed prophecy of future events to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. It is the most comprehensive prophecy of future events found anywhere in the Old Testament. And many of the Jewish scribes consider this chapter as the greatest chapter of the Old Testament. In fact, the the gospel writers frequently on many occasions quote from this chapter. Although much of his dream has been fulfilled, the final parts of it are yet future to us, and we must understand this. So Daniel has a vision in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. He has a vision and he sees four beasts coming from the Mediterranean Sea, coming out of the Mediterranean Sea. The first beast was uh, a lion that had the wings of an eagle. Its wings were plucked off and then it was lifted up and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart or a man's mind was given to that lion. Now, I don't want to get into the details of it, but this symbolizes the Babylonian Empire. And then there was a second beast that came out. The second beast represents Medo-Persia, and it is a bear with three ribs between its teeth. It is commanded to devour much flesh and devour a lot of people and kingdoms around it. Then there's a third uh, beast that comes, and that is a leopard, a leopard with four heads and four bird's wings on its back. Uh, It is swift. It is faster than the previous two animals that were shown. Now, this is referring to Alexander the Great, who with a lot of swiftness and stridency went about uh, conquering kingdoms in five years. And uh, before he died, uh, he conquered almost the then-known world of his time. So this is talking about the Greek empire, and much dominion was given to him. And finally, there was a strange beast. He couldn't name the beast, so let's call it unnamed beast. And this represents the Roman Empire. It has iron teeth, ten horns, which are replaced by a single conspicuous horn. We'll talk about that a little later. But for our understanding, let's put the the visions of chapter 2 and chapter 7 together to understand clearly what it is. Give me your undivided attention, please. All of you, please look at the screen. Now, in chapter 2, we saw uh, he had a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, and you had... uh, the thigh or midsection of bronze, legs of uh, iron, and feet of iron and clay. We saw that this uh, head of gold represents Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and some form of Rome that is yet future that is going to come. Now, here are the things that are given to him in the new one, chapter 7, where he sees the lion, which is Babylon, bear Medo-Persia, leopard, and the beast that represents Rome. Now, what about the feet and iron sorry, feet and toes, uh, there are ten here. They approximate, the ten toes here, approximate the ten horns of the beast that is unnamed in Daniel chapter 7. And what about the single horn that is conspicuous that comes out of these horns that becomes dominant? He is mentioned only in chapter 7, but that horn is not mentioned in chapter 2. So in the revelation of chapter 7, The unique revelation, the new revelation, is that there's a new horn that comes out of these ten horns. That is a new revelation. So I believe these ten kings uh, represent ten end-time rulers that are somehow connected to the old Roman Empire that died. And uh, how it's going to be revived, when it's going to be revived, it's all a matter of speculation. I'm not going to get into it. If somebody does speculate, I call it newspaper eschatology. I don't want to get into that. Let's just get to biblical eschatology alone. But then Daniel noticed an 11th horn, 11th horn that comes and arises out of these 10, which displays three of the 10 horns. And the horn had human eyes. Uh, It probably symbolizes human intelligence and a mouth to speak boastfully. And this is the Antichrist. Uh, We don't know who this person is once again. I've, I've given you... 
several details about uh, how people speculate about the Antichrist. We don't know who he is, when he is going to arise, but certainly in the future. Somehow in the future he is going to subdue ten, sorry, three kings and he is going to rise as a great political leader in the future. And all of these will become clear in the days preceding the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you see in Daniel chapter 7 a beautiful revelation is given. This beast is also destroyed and one like the Son of Man. You see one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days and he is given all glory and dominion and honor. And we see that in the Gospels, the title that the Lord Jesus Christ assumes for himself the most is not the word curios, not the word Lord, but the word Son of Man. He calls himself Son of Man. But anyway, that is the studies in the Gospel. In the Gospels, we can't, we can't get into that. So that's chapter 7. Now we come to chapter 8. Now this vision of chapter 8 happens in the third year of Belshazzar, two years after the vision of chapter 7. Third year of Belshazzar, by the river or canal Uli, he sees a ram with two horns. One horn is larger than the other or longer than the other. Now this uh, one is pushing in all directions. It's trying to conquer everything around it. Obviously, this represents Medo-Persia, and uh, the longer horn represents the Persian part of the empire, which had a greater say or a greater power than the Median part of the empire. Then you have another male goat or he-goat from the west. He's charging stridently. He's marching. He's destroying everybody in his way. And between its eyes, there is a large, long horn, and he goes and attacks the ram that was seen, and he conquers the ram. And you know who he's talking about? The prophecy here is about Alexander the Great. He's a he-goat from the West. He is the one who came marching stridently and killing and destroying a lot of people. And in five years of his life before he died, he conquered all of the world in those days. Then the goat becomes great in power. Again, we see this is, he conquered almost up to India here. Uh, this is the kingdom of Alexander the Great. But all of a sudden... <clears throat> This horn is suddenly cut off and it becomes four. It's broken, it becomes four, and that they're talking about four successors, four generals of Alexander the Great. His kingdom was divided among his four generals. You have Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, all of these people who took up the kingdom of Alexander. And then you have one horn that grows towards the south and east and towards the glorious land. He went on to persecute the Jews take away daily sacrifices, and desecrate the temple as well. And the prophecy here is talking about a man by the name of Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Antiochus IV Epiphanes is a prefigure of the Antichrist who is yet future. Now, this portion has a very, very strange uh, uh, detail that is given. It says that the Jews will be persecuted or oppressed by Antiochus IV Epiphanes for 2,300 days. 2,300 days. Now, when do these 2,300 days come and all of that? Uh, we don't know exactly, but we can certainly do an educated guess from history as to what things uh, have unraveled in the past. On the 25th of December, 165 BC, under the leadership of Judas Maccabees, the great Maccabean revolt was happening. And under the leadership of Judas Maccabees, uh, when the temple, after the temple was desecrated by this man, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, uh, Judas Maccabees goes in and he cleanses the temple and he reinstates the temple and the temple sacrifice is reinstated as well. And that is celebrated even today by the Jews as the festival of the Hanukkah, the festival of the Hanukkah. So you start your 2300 days backwards from 25th of December 165 BC and you go back 2300 days you come to the 6th of September 171 BC what happened on the 6th of September 171 BC we don't know uh, no second temple Jewish studies have clear references to anything that happened on 6th September 171 BC but we do know what happened in 171 BC in 171 BC historians say that the peace that was there between Antiochus and the Jews got rubbed in a wrong way. And so they, was, they started fighting. The pious high priest, a good man by the name of Onias III, was replaced by another man by the name of Jason. 
Jason was not a good man. He went and bribed Antiochus, replaced Onias III, who was a good high priest, and he became the high priest himself, and that was in 171 BC. So from that period on, if you take 2,300 days, you end up in uh, you end up on the 25th of December, 165 BC. So for 2,300 days, Antiochus IV Epiphanes uh, persecuted and oppressed the Jews. So Gabriel then begins to explain to the Daniel that the vision refers to the time of the end. And many scholars of these verses have noticed striking similarities between Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who uh, oppressed the Jews, who persecuted the Jews, and uh, another political leader called the Antichrist, who's going to come in the future. And therefore, my conclusion about all of this is that this verses, uh, these verses are prophetic, both about uh, Antiochus IV Epiphanes and the future Antichrist, who's going to come. And so the response of Daniel to this vision is one of fear. He starts fainting, and he, he gets sickness as well, listening to all these things that are going to happen. Chapter 9. Four more chapters. Uh, we will do it in the next 10 minutes, so give me your undivided attention, please. These get even a little tough, so we'll have to land more frequently. Give me your undivided attention, please. This is tough. Now, in Daniel chapter 9, we know from... Uh, the book of Jeremiah, that Daniel is one day sitting in the morning and he's having his quiet time. He decided to have his quiet time from the book of Jeremiah, which is a very good and interesting book. And as he is taking his quiet time, the Lord reveals to him that the, uh, the captivity in Babylon is going to be for 70 years. It's going to be for 70 years. Now, what 70-year period uh, is he referring to? Because the first deportation we saw happened in 605 BC. And if you add both these years together, the temple reconstruction happened in 536 BC. Uh, are you talking about this 70 years or are you talking about some of the 70 years? I think because the uh, scripture specifically mentions the phrase, the desolations of Jerusalem, I think it is talking about the period of 586 BC when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and from here you count on excluding this year, you come to 515 BC when the temple was finished, when the temple was rebuilt. So that is the 70-year period. I think most probably... Uh, that Daniel is uh, referring to here. So understanding that 70 years are going to be fulfilled soon, Daniel begins to fast and pray, and he begins to confess the sins of his people. The curses in the law of Moses towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy have all come to pass, and Daniel is confessing the sins of people because they're going to be uh, reinstituted in that land. They're going to be sent back to their land. And Daniel asked God to forgive them and restore Jerusalem. That is his clear prayer. What is the prayer? Lord, forgive us, forgive us your people, and please restore Jerusalem. And when he asked God to restore Jerusalem, he requests God to restore Jerusalem. All of a sudden, Gabriel comes down in a swift flight, and he starts giving all of the panorama of what's going to happen in the future. John Walwood once again says this in the concluding four verses of Daniel 9. One of the most important prophecies of the Old Testament is contained. One of the most important prophecies of the Old Testament is contained. What is the prophecy about? The prophecy is that the Jews and Jerusalem would suffer at the hands of the Gentiles for 77 area periods. Now follow this please. What did John, uh, Daniel ask for? He says, please reinstate Jerusalem. Please restore Jerusalem. The angel comes and says, under the Gentile kings, Jerusalem and your people are going to suffer for 770 times or 77s, which is about 490 years. So God has sovereignly decreed these 490 years where the Jews are going to suffer under the Gentile kings. What is the purpose that God has decreed for these years? It is a six-fold purpose that God has decreed for these years. Firstly, he says, the Bible itself says in the chapter, it will end the rebellion against him. Number two, it will end human failure to obey God. Number three, it will provide a time of atonement that will cover human wickedness. Number four, it will inaugurate a new society in which righteousness prevails. 
Number five, it will bring in the fulfillment of the vision that God has for the earth. Number six, it will result in the anointing of the most holy. It is probably, probably a reference to the new and the more glorious temple that is in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. So God has already achieved some of these goals. Uh, specifically, the third one, it will provide a time for atonement that will cover human wickedness. And to some extent, the first two have been fulfilled as well. However, the other goals or the purposes that God has given uh, in in these six uh, that have not been fulfilled yet, uh, we are to see the fulfillment of it in the future. So it is reasonable for all of us to look for a future fulfillment of the remaining things that have not been fulfilled. So let's see when is this period starting from and when this 490 years will end. Now follow along, please. There are four decrees that went out concerning, the, concerning Jerusalem. The first decree that went out was by Cyrus. It went out in 538 BC to rebuild the temple. And then there was a second decree by Darius I. And that was in 512 BC. It confirmed Cyrus's earlier edict and uh, it was also to rebuild the temple. Then the third one was by Artaxerxes, and that was a decree in 457 BC. And the last one was by Artaxerxes again, authorizing Nehemiah to build Jerusalem or rebuild the walls of Jerusalem as well in 444 BC. So what should we take as a starting point for these 490 years? Listen, please. The first two of these decrees authorize the rebuilding of the temple. The third one provided for animal sacrifices in the temple. But it is only the fourth one that gave the Jews express permission to rebuild Jerusalem. And most probably, it is the fourth one that is in view here. So you take 444 BC as a starting point. And when we look at the book of Nehemiah, we see that the 70 weeks there began on the 5th of March, 444 BC. Now follow along, please. It begins at, on the 5th of March, 444 BC. And what did God tell Daniel? Gentile kings are going to rule for 490 years. Now, when you do the math, you will see that after the angel predicts that after 69 weeks, after 69 weeks, it specifically used the word after, the Messiah is suddenly cut off. The Messiah is suddenly cut off. What is the angel predicting here? When you add up all of these numbers, uh, and you make the appropriate adjustments moving from a Persian calendar to a Jewish calendar and then to the modern Julian calendar, you will see that these 69 days or 69 uh, times 7, these years end on the 30th of March, AD 33. The 30th of March, AD 33. So specific it is. And by the way, I'm following uh, Harold Horner of Dallas Seminary who followed this particular uh, method of dating. All right, so what happened on the 30th of March, 33 AD? 30th of March, 33 AD is a day that we call as a triumphal entry when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey and then everybody praised him and and they said, Hosanna, come and save us. And he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. He went and cleansed the temple. Four days later, the 3rd of April, 33 AD, he died on a cross. It was a Friday. 5th of April, on a Sunday, he rose again from the dead. So you see clearly that 490 years, sorry, 483 years here are fulfilled, and the Messiah dies after the 483 years are fulfilled. And all of a sudden, it says the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is a person different from the Messiah. And His people, not himself, they would come and destroy the city. Now, this happened in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian came as a Roman general and his people came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple as well. But the fact of the matter is, Titus did not make any covenant with the Jews. It clearly mentions that the man who's going to come and destroy will make a covenant with the Jews. And obviously, it is talking about a future leader, the little horn of chapter 7, who, uh, who will come during the 70th week and make a covenant with the Jews. And therefore, there must be a break in chronology between uh, the 69th week and the 70th week. And this age in between is called the, the church age, where we're all right now going through. If you read chapter 9, verse 27, 
It describes a yet future period when Antichrist will rise to power, make a seven-year treaty with the Jews, and he will break it right in the middle, causing something called the abomination that causes desolation. Spoken here in chapter 9, again talked about in Matthew 24 by our Lord Jesus himself. He says, Daniel mentions that in Daniel chapter 9. And as Daniel mentioned, the Antichrist is going to perform something called the abomination that causes desolation. He will proclaim himself as God and thus setting off the remaining three and a half years of something called the Great Tribulation and also called the time of Jacob's trouble, at the end of which the Antichrist himself will be destroyed by God himself. Chapter 10. Daniel sees a vision in the third year of Cyrus. He sees a vision in the third year of Cyrus, and he receives a revelation about the future. The revelation involves his people, the nation of Israel, the last days, and a great war. And he realizes and understands in chapter 10 that there's a great spiritual warfare that's going on between good angels and bad angels. And that's why when Daniel prays, there is a three-week delay in his answers to prayers. And it is only Michael who assisted the other angel who was speaking to Daniel who could come after three weeks, with a three weeks of delay, and come and answer Daniel's prayer. Very quickly, chapter 11. Chapter 11, uh, the angel reveals to him that uh, Israel is going to go through four tough periods of war, like never before in its history. The four periods of war are Persia to Alexander the Great, the first period, and then you have the struggle of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids as the second period, and then the third period is Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes, And then finally, you have the great eschatological period called the Great Tribulation, and that is a final period in which Jewish people are going to go through that struggle. And after that will come the reign of the Messiah, when all these Jews will will reign. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will reign with the Lord in the kingdom. Uh, And then you have... uh, You have details about the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, how they warred with Jerusalem at the center. Uh, Here are the six wars of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And then you have Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who is is a prefigure of the Antichrist, who with flattery comes and tries to uh, desecrate the temple. And uh, he, he puts the statue of Zeus on the altar. He sacrifices a pig and desecrates the temple as well. But then the last few verses describe a series of military maneuvers that will take place in the last few years of tribulation, the last three and a half years of tribulation. You will see that it refers to the kings of the south and the kings of the north. Most probably the kings of the south refer to the end-time ruler who leads an alliance of armies that will include the present-day Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and North African nations. And then you have the kings of the north who could come from Syria, Turkey, Russia, and one of the regions of former USSR. All of them will come and collide there. So as the Antichrist in the end time, this is during the three and a half years of great tribulation, tries to consolidate his power, he will face serious opposition. And in the process, he invades and conquers Israel, which is called the beautiful land. So towards the end of tribulation, he will hear rumors from the east, which would include Iraq and India, Pakistan and Southeast Asia, China, Korea and all these, Japan, all these countries. And perhaps I think this should be connected with the vast army mentioned in Revelation chapter 16. Now these verses give us a compressed account of what is called the Battle of Armageddon. So uh, armies from the north and east, roughly Russia and China, they all will move towards the Antichrist, causing a bloody war that is unknown in human history. If you read Revelation chapter 14, it says that blood flows there to the height of the horse's bridle. So much of blood flow and so much of war is happening. And as the Antichrist here prepares to go to war, he sets up his military headquarters in Jerusalem itself between the Mediterranean Sea and the Dead Sea. The final battle will take place in the plains of Jezreel at the crossroads called Megiddo. And in Hebrew, it is called Har Megiddo, translated into English as Armageddon or the Battle of Armageddon. And that's where all these uh, armies meet and there's a lot of bloodshed in the future. And I've, uh, I've done this very fast. I had to s- uh, skip a lot of things. Chapter 12, the final chapter. Michael stands up at the time of trouble, and the Jewish people, all of them, will be delivered if their names are found written in the book of life. The dead will be resurrected, 
and some to everlasting life, and those who did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be uh, resurrected to everlasting contempt. But the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And Daniel is told to shut up these words, preserve these words for the future. And he's told that you will gain greater understanding in the years to come as you get closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But lastly, he is told that the trouble... Uh, it will be for a time, times, and half a time, which is for three and a half years. That's when God will purify his people, and he set the limit for the trouble. And he's also told about 1,290 days, and we discussed that in my last sermon that, we, that I preached. And he's also told that if you wait for 1335 days, then God will come to your rescue as well. I'm not going to get into the details of it, but Daniel is told at the end that you may not understand all of it, but you must go your way. You must go your way. You've done enough for me. You will die. You will be raised. And you will have your inheritance in my kingdom. Daniel, go your way. Thank you for your patience. Uh, it was tougher speaking about all of this than sitting there and listening. Uh, but let's, let me make some four or five applications from the entire book and not specifically, uh, specifically from any passage. Number one, recognize God's sovereignty over everything in history. God is sovereign over kingdoms. God is sovereign over political empires. He is sovereign over your life. He is sovereign over the elections of Karnataka next week as well. God is sovereign over everything, recognizes sovereignty in everything. Number two, resist evil without compromise. There is nothing called the lesser of two evils. We must resist every evil. We as believers must stand for truth and integrity, and we must resist evil without compromise. Thirdly, Trust God for your ultimate salvation so that you can endure to the end. Trust God for your ultimate salvation. There could be troubles and everything right now in the world, but ultimately we're going to be victors in the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes with his kingdom. Fourthly, seek God in prayer and intercession. Always seek God in prayer and intercession. And God speaks through us, speaks to us through prayer and intercession as well. Lastly, live a godly life. Live a godly life. So these are the things that we learn from the book of Daniel. Again, thank you for your patience, and uh, I think I need a bottle of water, uh, but uh, thank you so much for listening with such patience. May God bless you all, and please pray with me as to what we need to start next. Uh, we will go again, phrase by phrase, detail by detail, in the next book that we're going to start. Thank you very much, and let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this book. We want to thank you for this great detail of prophecy. And you're, in, you're only able to do that because you're sovereign. You have ordained every detail of our lives. You have ordained every detail of the world as well, O Lord. We want to thank you that we uh, serve such a sovereign God. Father, we pray that uh, we go through life without compromising, and we will, we will resist evil, trusting that you are sovereign over everything. We pray for the rest of the things that are going to happen today as well. I pray, O Lord, for the time of fellowship and sisters' fellowship. I pray that your hand of blessing will be upon all of this. Uh, we want to thank you once again for your word in Jesus' name. Good morning, church. Thank you, Raven.